The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the world. Gather into the arms of your grace and compassion those who are near and those who are far, that this world on earth might better resemble the family you have in heaven. Amen. Um, okay, so, so welcome back to our fourth session on Hinduism, but I think it's really important for us to tell you about minor victories in the world, <laughs> just so you know that there are minor victories. About maybe four years ago, this driveway got built, you know. If you were around, this is a little bit of a sore spot because you all built this driveway and it was pricey and you've never been able to park there once. Because <laughs> the day after you built it, the fire marshal showed up, painted it all red. Oh, this is being recorded. I'm going to cut this part out. Well, um, we are unpainting half of that thing um, this week. So if you're thinking that walking is a little difficult down that long hallway, well, well, you'd be able to park here, and if you ever need to unload something in the kitchen, you'll no longer have to worry that there'll be a ticket on your vehicle when you come back from the loading zone. Okay, so, so really, we, we got like 10 parking spots down there this week. Yeah, isn't that great? I think that's pretty good, right? I mean, I'll, I'll, take, some good, I'll take some good news. Yeah, yeah. It took a lot of people. There we go. So um, that has nothing to do with this. Um, I think, though, if it's okay, just again, to come here, if you're not here on, on Wednesdays, or if you are, this is an interesting recap. We're watching this video about embracing interfaith cooperation. And uh, one of the things it talked about this week, is really, this is a confusing diagram, sorry, because um, it, it's really a little bit nonsensical. But just about the whole endeavor, you know, is that there kind of is this thing that happens as we do this, where really the way that we can talk about um, cooperation or respect is really grounded on relationships that we have with either other people, sometimes real or fictitious, it's important to say that, real or fictitious, that belong to this other group. And then what's important as we grow this is having some knowledge about that other group and paying really careful attention to our attitudes. Now, this isn't recap for anybody. Nobody was here on Wednesday, hardly, so this is okay to say. You know, um, learning about a different religion is all fine uh, when it's, when it's uh, abstract until there becomes a threat of danger associated with it. So I just want you to think about this. Hinduism, in general, probably feels very safe, albeit different for many of you, because there aren't headlines in the news about Hindus blowing things up. Does, does it make sense, what I'm saying? Um, if I asked you how many of you are good friends with a Muslim, I would see one, two, three and a half, four. If I asked you how many are good friends with a Hindu, I would see about the same number, so not very many. Not <laughs> very many, right? S small portion. How many are good friends with a Methodist? I try not to let it get in the way, you know, I just, I just want you to know, but I do have those friends. You see, the proportion shifts quite a bit, right? And the thing is, when we talk about, this is part of what this video series is getting us to question, right? When we talk about Islam particularly, the only Muslim that most people in the United States know well is the one in the news headlines. There's not a, there's not a relational alternative to that one. 
that one Muslim, which is the, the, the uneducated, blow up the UNESCO monument, uh, blow things up. Ang I mean, really, Muslims just blow stuff up. That's, that's what you get from the news. And without another relationship, you have no real strong ability to question what you're being told, right? And knowledge is great. It can build on that relationship. But as I told you before, um, it depends what kind of knowledge you have, whether it's, frankly, defensive knowledge or if it is appreciative. So I told you that my first foray into world religions was teaching Bible at Christian High School in El Cajon, California, and they did have a lot of knowledge of world religions. I mean, they, they could tell you Muslims read the Quran. They knew that. They, like, they knew these facts. They, they, they knew what the five pillars were, but the knowledge that they acquired there was how all of those practices were idolatrous, fraudulent, and inspired violence. So there was no appreciative inquiry going on, right? There was, there was knowledge, but without any respect. The opposite, though, when you start to think about what, how are these things lifting other people up and how can I appreciate, you know, particularly when we talk about details. Broad brush, everybody's a person and it's great. You know, everybody's just great. But really, this knowledge is aimed at, you know, what does love really mean in the Muslim tradition or what does peace really mean? How is it different from the way I typically understand it and my Christian understanding, and how can I learn from that, right? That approach leads us up together. The other approach of what different, wrong, right? And, and that, frankly, that kind of knowledge, the, 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 the defensive knowledge, tends to be the tack taken when there's not a relationship. Because you're not losing anything that you know of, right? Not losing anything you know of. And then there's this interesting thing about attitudes, and this, this can sound really, really um, strange. Like, why do we need attitudes there? Because sometimes our, our fundamental openness or closedness towards another people group or philosophy or way of life can really determine whether we pursue either one of those things. Okay? The reason, by the way, that this is so important, I think, is that talking about other religions is an, is, is an exercise in talking about compassion and appreciative knowledge and relationships and attitudes in general. Because the truth is, all of us have met people and know people and may be friends with people or may be trying to figure out if we're going to be friends with people who are in a different category from ourselves. And, and I'll just throw out a few categories. The safest one for me, but to me is a domino category, is women in ministry. Can women be ministers? Well, categorically, until I was 21, I said, no way, because I had no relationship with a female minister, none. My attitude was such that I wouldn't, you, you see. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to a church with a female minister, because that was just wrong. So I precluded myself from a relationship with my attitude. What I knew was some grasp of a biblical text, or several, that was pejorative towards women, frankly, without really knowing the intent of the scriptures, <laughs> as I feel like I know them now, in a, in, a, in a better way, right? So I knew scriptures in such a way as they could defend my attitude, but not in a way that they could challenge my attitude or make me more open. Now, this is a little bit what the sermon tries to be about today. It probably won't succeed. Um, but, you know, there's a difference between justifying ourselves 
and being made just. I actually think that's like the critical criterion for all of this world religion study and relations with people who are at cross categories from me is am I looking to feel good about what I think or am I looking to be open to God surprising me and showing up in other people that I was sure God would have no business with? It's really difficult to have that outlook, right? If you, you, you sort of wake up every morning and say, God, I really want you to disrupt my equilibrium. I, I swear I'll be happier at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> this is actually not a very joyful prayer, right? Many of us have, have had that happen, and in the end, we were sort of glad it happened, but God, wasn't it tough? Anybody had that experience? With yourself? Oh, man. Okay, so, I, and that's why I want to hold before you this this ostensibly seems like we're just learning all these factoids and these different ways of life, but realize we're, 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 we're doing it not in case you ever meet a Jane, which you may not, the proportion of Janes is teeny tiny, but you probably will meet somebody who's, I don't know, dare I say it, a registered Democrat, and what will you do? <laughs> what will you do with a registered Democrat? Well, Depends your attitude, right? You, you see what I mean. I, I, it's, for me, it's important to put this up front because this is the aim of the enterprise. And as we go through, if you feel like that aim, I, I'm being disingenuous and I'm doing something else, please say, hey, I don't hear you having an open attitude. I feel like the knowledge you're sharing is not appreciative. It's diminutive. Okay? Now, keep in mind, right? This doesn't mean everybody's the same and everything's good. It, it's meant to be appreciative, but we also understand that there has to be accountability, right? So we can say the people who blow things up in Islam aren't real Muslims. Well, they think they are. They think they are, so who are you to judge? You, you know what I mean. And in some ways, maybe we can understand the road that's taking them there and still judge that that road is not a good road. Does, does it make sense what I mean? That's the hard road to walk, right, is I understand how your socioeconomics and, um, you know, your politics and your understanding of the religion will get you down that road. I, like, I have some understanding how we could do that for you, open to that, but I still think that the road itself is, is, is wrong and categorically flawed and the ends are not okay. Does anybody think that's a difficult road to walk? Right? This is the one we struggle with, right, in family relationships. How do I love somebody who I think is acting out without endorsing their wrong behaviors? You know? And, and a lot of us were taught, I mean, I was taught, to quarantine people who are doing the wrong thing. Because if you show them affection, they'll think you're endorsing their lifestyle. And what ends up happening is they think they're being completely and utterly judged. <laughs> which is not what we want. So, so it's dicey. Uh, but I just want to hold that up before us as we, as we proceed. And I, if I return to it week after week, it's because I return to it day after day internally. If not about Hinduism, then about some other thing. Um, any other uh, questions as we start? Or did I already offend you? You can, you can go. Um, <laughs> license to go. Yes, sir. I, I, absolutely. Say, say more. Well, 
you, you know, there's this sort of famous line from the chaplain at Harvard in the 70s. People would come into the chaplain, Christian chaplain, right, and they'd say, well, I don't believe in God. And the chaplain's reply was, well, why don't you tell me what kind of God you don't believe in? Because I probably don't believe in that one either, right? And in some ways, that's kind of snarky. And of course, it's probably going to come around to convincing the person, right, that they're wrong about God in general. I don't know how I feel about it in the end, but certainly in the beginning, in the beginning, that compassionate listening and being willing to say, yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I, you, might, you might have some truth to what it is you have to say, which is hard for us to swallow because we want to be defensive people and we want to be justified. Um, it's probably not a bad approach at the outset. It always depends what we're doing with it, right? If it's a bait and switch and in the end, well, you're just all wrong. It's all because your definitions are flawed, right? It means we weren't really listening to the person. We were just waiting for our turn to correct them. You know what I mean? You ever listened so that you'd have your turn? Not because you wanted to hear, just so you could have your turn. And, and, and that is not really upholding the relationship side of this, right? Just think about that for a second. Oh, but Mike, in a relationship, there's dialogue. There is, but, but, but when we invite, we have to walk with somebody until they say they're done, not n- until we decide they're done. Do, you, you know what I mean. You've had children or parents. You walk with them until they say they're done. <laughs> you were done a long time ago. They're not done, right? You, you understand what I mean? Okay, anyway. All right, so, so uh, that said... Well, let's hop right back into Hinduism. And what we talked about last weekend um, is that this is the dog and this is the cat. Somebody was on here. Uh, we talked a little bit about the, the castes and how those likely originated as personality types with distinct careers, but as uh, invasion set in, and there became less flexibility. These became very rigid categories that you were born into, right? And remember that if you're born a laborer, that the best thing you can do is be a laborer your whole life. And don't dream of being a scholar, because you would be doing something other than you were born to do. And if you try that stuff, not only will you end up dissatisfied, right? But you'll accumulate bad karma. Doing the thing you're born to do is doing your dharma. It's doing your role. It's being a good, faithful bloom where planted. But understand, you can't uproot yourself and move. When you want to uproot yourself and move, unfaithful, bad, not doing your dharma, you accumulate negative karma, and you will have to work that off, as it were. Keep in mind that this idea of working off bad karma has a lot more to do with the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory than it does anything Protestant. See, purgatory is where you work that stuff out, and then you go on to heaven. But if you really believe in retributive justice, where everything has to be paid for, purgatory makes a lot of sense. Because your punishment is temporary, and then you can go to heaven forever. But not till you've paid the price. It's a lot more just, frankly, than, than most Protestant pictures of heaven and hell. And 
it happens here. And then see, notice that what they do is they have a shift in eternity. See, we think one life and you die, and they think, no, 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 you, you actually can have lots of lives until you work that stuff out. Lots of lives until you work that stuff out. It's actually pretty compassionate, don't you think? Compared to hell forever after one life. I mean, just, I just want you to think about that. Appreciative. And these are, remember, the ways that you can work that stuff out. Yes, sir. Very Episcopal of you. How, it is. How many of us in the room have come from evangelical or lower Protestant faiths? So about half of us, right? Now, you may be in a different spot than you were raised. I'm just curious to know if many of you were raised to sort of have an opposite picture uh, your choice fundamentally is whether you accept or reject God in this lifetime. And if you choose reject, then you go to hell forever. Is that a familiar conception to many of you? Yes, ma'am. Well, I think this is really helpful, and I, if I can talk about it briefly in the Christian tradition, I promise we'll get back into the Hindu tradition. But because you've said that, I think it's important, and Nick took us, helped us go there too. I might have introduced it. But, you know, this is really, really important. You know, what, what uh, Christians have struggled with this for a long time, especially since the Reformation. Now, prior to the Reformation, really there was this idea that, that purgatory was the way somebody would work that off. And I think actually this makes a lot of sense. God will only punish you for a fixed 
number of years in purgatory for something you've done on earth, which if you think about it, happened over a fixed number of years. So you get years for years. You don't get eternity for years, because that doesn't make sense. That would not be just. Do you know what I mean? You can have life in prison, but you can't have eternal life in prison. I mean, that's sort of how purgatory goes. That's where it comes from. And then Martin Luther came out with this idea that Karl Barth has revised. It's very, very interesting. And, and, and Martin Luther was working at this. He sort of said, how can I ever do anything good enough? Because truthfully, I know that everything I do is selfish. And there's this great definition that a saint is a person who knows the selfishness of their every action. Now, that's nice, <laughs> right? That's kind of gracious and open, right? So Luther said, guess what? There is nothing you can do, although Luther thought that you kind of maybe had to maybe accept God's grace, although Luther said, really, your ability to accept that would be selfish, so you couldn't even do it. Luther left the door open very mysterious. Now, listen, as a Southern Baptist, we, we thought we were in the tradition of Luther, and we were not because we were convinced we had to do it. Luther said, you can't do it. <laughs> Calvin read Luther and said, you're right, you can't do it. Only God can pick who picks God. So number six is in a fix, and number seven goes to heaven. And there's nothing you can do about it. Now, if you want proof that you're number seven, you'll do good works. Because <laughs> that's how you know you've been regenerated spiritually. This is the doctrine of predestination, right? Is that God has already made the choice for you. And some people don't get the good end. This is what Karl Barth does. Now, Karl Barth, probably the most influential um, Protestant theologian of the 20th century, and some of you heard of him. Some people say it's Paul Tillich or whatever. This is what Karl Barth does. It's fantastic. You go back and read the scripture, and it says, you'll, you'll find words like predestined, before the foundation of the world, such and such happened, the elect. Karl Barth goes back and he reads the sentence as a German sentence, which is a really long one, which is fine because Greek doesn't have punctuation, just so that you know. And he reads this long sentence, and what Karl Barth reads is that who was predestined? Jesus, before the foundation of the world, to be the Savior of all. So instead of God predestining Pam to go to hell and Kathy to go to heaven, what God has done is predestined our fate through Jesus for everybody to go. <laughs> it's a very different read of predestination. It's about the means, not about the who. Well, it's about both. The who is everybody, and the means is Jesus Christ. <sighs> and that's interesting, right? Because then, as Nick says, we have these choices, and if you read The Great Divorce, it's great, because, you know, as a person, I do often choose to live in hell during this lifetime. I realize that I, I, I do. Sometimes I just don't feel like I have a choice, but, but I do. Existential hell, right? Life is miserable. Live there frequently. Go through that door often. Um, I know where the door is. I know not to open it, but, man, I love going in there. Uh, yeah. Regardless of what I choose on earth, Karl Barth says, God's already chosen for you. So, during this lifetime, we have choice, and afterward, God makes it for us, affirmatively. Now, I'm not telling you Barth's right, but I think he's right. <laughs> because the deepest conviction of my faith 
when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm mentally sober, and I don't mean anything involving alcohol or drugs, I mean when I'm just at my best, is that God has to be better than me. God has to be better than me. Or, or God wouldn't be God. God would just be like bigger me, which is pretty good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the day. No, see, this God that is strict justice, and you've done this, you stole that cookie when you were three, and so you're going to have to eat cookies for five years in hell with demons shoving them in your mouth to make that right. That God is not better than me. That God is stricter than I am. That God is more vengeful than I am. But I don't think strictness and vengeance fall in the category of better. And, And I think really the choice is when we read Scripture is, Where is your hope, and where is your faith, and where is your experience? Is your experience that God is waiting to punish you? It was for a long time, because that was my attitude. That was my attitude about God. And until my attitude changed, because I would say, God loves me, God loves me, but God's waiting to punish me, doesn't even make sense. My mother did not wait to punish me. She would, but she wasn't waiting to do it. Do you you know what I mean? That's where we start to come into conflict with these things. And then we have to make, oh, I don't know, choices in this lifetime about God. But man, don't you really hope that love wins? Don't you hope love wins instead of pettiness and vengeance? By the way, this isn't just Christianity we're talking about. You realize Muslims believe in an eternal hell and an eternal heaven, right? Jews, not so much, just to let you know, because we're talking about these things. Hinduism, you'll probably all get there eventually. (laughs) It just may take you a really long time. That's pretty affirmative, isn't it, right? I mean, eventually you can make it, right? Because eventually you'll say, like, this is not going well, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. I'm sort of kicking the goads. Why don't I, just for the sake of, of, of not being bored, why don't I just try something different? Jane? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's another way to read that. I just want to suggest, and, and, I, and I agree with you. And so does Philip Carey, who's a professor at Eastern College, because that's his lecture about praying for the dead. <laughs> um, it's a good, it's a compelling lecture. But I also think some of the reason that we pray for the dead is not as much for their sake as for our own. Because even though we have this faith, is faith really a one-time decision for any of you? I was taught that it was as a Southern Baptist that you just did it one time. But I just, I haven't experienced that in my own life. Because there were many times in college I felt like I had to go rededicate my life and get right with the Lord, right? (laughs) I mean, that's how I felt. Even though I'd made that one decision. Because I was still living, you know. 
I was still living. And as long as we're living, I think, you know, we need a, n a new mile marker. And, you know, I, I, I don't even know that it's either or, James. It might be both and, you know. There's people I've lost that I need continued assurance and, and the ability to imagine um, Christ the Good Shepherd holding them. So when I say, God, please receive them into the arms of your mercy, that might be more for my imagination than for their eternal welfare. Because through faith, I think God's already done it. But, you know, if I only told my wife I loved her that one time before we got married, and she did believe and trust me, and in the last 13 years I say it less and less or not at all, and I say, well, I told you that already. It wouldn't be a great relationship. And I think it's the same with our, with our dead, right? Because our soul has been so entwined with theirs, how are we going to unweave it from our heart, ever? I'm not sure we should. Hence the need, God, are they walking with you? Are they in your arms? Please receive them into the arms of your mercy. And me as well. Again, I think a lot of times, if we're honest, our prayers are more for us than they are for God. And that's the definition of a saint. <laughs> that we know the selfishness of our every intention. But that's good stuff. I think that's good stuff. When you hear about it in the morning, thing, just, just last thing, I know, gosh, I do this all the time. You, you, we're going to be together for years, I hope. And, and I'm going to wear you out. And, and, and I don't want you to. You can just stop talking about that. Let's get back to this board. <laughs> Let's talk about this other stuff. You just go ahead. I'll, I promise I'll do it. But, you know, it occurs to me when we do confession, I mean, really, I'm not going to remember everything I did wrong. Sometimes the things I did wrong, I didn't even know were wrong. At the time, I thought it was a really good thing I was doing, you know, being strict and vengeful. Because God's like that sometimes, I guess. Right? So I may not confess it. That confession we do, though, is it so much for God or is it for us to know, right, that if we remain open, God is always open to us. Well, even if we don't remain open, God's open to us. And that there are things we're doing that are separating us from being in full communion with God, and they don't have to. And God's not going to put them between us anymore. In fact, God never did. We just did. Anybody ever felt like you weren't good enough for God? I mean, even for a moment? Like that thing you did was going to make communion not work, or your prayers weren't going to be heard as much. I worry about people who have never felt that way. I mean, I do. I do. Because I think you'd have to be psychopathic. Because with everybody else in the world, things we do can affect relationships. So I'm pretty sure that's why we have confession. Because we know things affect relationships, and God, we don't want it to be affected anymore, and we can't really make it up to you unless we try not to do it anymore. But even then, trying's not, you know what I mean? This is where Luther did Trying's not good enough. But God is. God is good enough. Trying is not. And that's why we can try. <laughs> okay, sorry, that was a big harangue. Many of you are getting ready to go to sleep, which is good, right? Sleep is nice for the soul. But hopping back here, remember, these then are the ways, these then are the ways that we sort of expunge that negative karma from our lives, right? These are the yogas, which are ways of devotion, right? That's... Uh, Knowledge, right? Loving kindness to gods and other people. 
um, similar, doing our dharma, doing all of our, our, our needs, looking out for the people. These ones, right, are just the yoga that we know, that focusing on your breath in these weird positions so that you can always be focused on your breath. And then this is the weird kind, the mystical kind, where you break all the rules with the intention of encountering God, because God's beyond the rules. Dervishes do this, right, in the Islamic tradition, Sufis. This is like um, Kabbalah in Judaism. Uh, there's Christians that do that too, and I'm trying to think what they are. Oh, they're Episcopalians. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> okay. So these are some of these ways, right? And then the, 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 the problem is, you see, is that um, we're, we're really trying to get away from this ultimate spirituality, the spiritual force of, of illusion. What we're trying to do is get away from that force, from Maya, that says, you know, there's no eternality of our spirits, of our breath, um, and that you can be whatever you want to and forget everybody else. You just make your own selves. Um, we're trying to get away from that, and we're trying to get away to a place where our spirit is sort of at one with the universe because then our spirit will be one with the universe and it won't be embodied anymore, right? That's the idea. Get, get this thing purified. And that thing, right, is called our Atman. And as I've told you before, um, that's really located in our breathing and in the Hebrew Bible, your soul's in your neck. And I have to tell you, I love when we say the Lord be with you and the answer is and with thy spirit for this reason. May the Lord be in your breathing. It's good, right? It's good. It's good, 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 good link. Okay, I recent, and I told you then that there are two holy books when we talk about this, but also that inform loving devotion to the gods, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. The first category is what's called Shruti which were heard from the gods directly. That's in Sanskrit. People don't really speak that language anymore. It's no longer adaptive, so it's called dead. But these are the texts that tell you how to sacrifice. These are the things that describe some of those rites of passage. Like, what do you do when somebody dies or when they're born? Or how do you celebrate a wedding? What are the stages of life? So we're going to talk about all those in just a second. Um, uh, the Upanishads are also part of the Shruti, if you've heard of these before. The Upanishads. The Smriti are things remembered. So they're like the oral tradition about the gods. These less so. Um, these would be things, as I told you last week, like the Mahabharata. Uh, the laws of Manu are part of Smriti. And the laws of Manu, which are about 3,000 years old, really, they tell you the rules for your caste. But see, that's not heard directly. That's remembered. And notice that's, that's category two scripture. Okay. Category one, scripture, smirti, those are words like om. Nobody's quite sure what that means, but they heard it from the gods. And that's the power of it, right, is this divine, divine language, right? Just to make sure we're empathetic, you, you, you meet preachers, and I certainly did this as a young person, I'm still interested in it today, that will tell you Greek words for English things, like agape love is the best kind, right? It's the best kind, I mean, it isn't. It's one of three kinds of love. I mean, eros love is no, no less than agape love in the Greek worldview or in the Bible. But, you know, we learn these certain words from our preachers as being like magic words. You know, agape love. That's, that's the kind you want, right? <laughs> and it's kind of like om in that sense, right? Because it's the older, not the English words. It must have more weight. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, that's what it does for us. Um, and, and, and that's going on there, too. Okay, so, so maybe I can go back and, um, 
this is not going to be good. Yeah. Get rid of that thing. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about these other scriptures. Look at that. I used all of these up. That's great. Okay. I have another one, but not here. So we'll just do it on the cardboard. So let's talk about a little bit, maybe, um, so far I've really talked a lot about the philosophy and some of the theology of Hinduism, but we haven't really talked about what it is you do in relationship to the gods, right? So, so how do Hindu people worship? Haven't talked about that. Haven't talked about rites of renewal and rites of passage very much, okay? So that's really what I probably want to spend the rest of the time on today. Let me tell you first, in terms of um, th there's this, this understanding of life stages, and I'm not going to bother with the Hindi words because I don't remember them. <laughs> but there's basically four stages of life, and I think Joe can tell me if he wants to, and Joe, remember, correct me at any time, because it's probably all bad. But um, there's, there's this first stage of life is sort of the student stage or the child stage, and that's where really your role is to learn and to grow into a trade or in the school, right, whatever it is. And that's sort of what you do. Your, your ability to contribute to other people is, is sort of not there in general because your focus is on growth and development, right? So that's kind of what you do. And then, you know, you become an adult and you become what's called a householder, householder and the householders right it just makes sense you're in your career now maybe you're having children and raising them supporting students but you're still pretty dedicated to your career you, you know what I mean you, you've got a full-time job you move into this other phase of life that's sort of called a f uh, this is an Aranyaka I think right the Aranyaka is the forest dweller that's like the bad interpretation but it's like retirement and in retirement, you might go and you li might live the more bucolic or pastoral existence, right? And, and you're no longer in the big urban setting necessarily, and you're, you're sort of out there able to take help with these other people. And the fourth stage of life that most Hindus and Christian people don't get to is to be an aesthetic. And that would be sort of like a wandering beggar. This is somebody who forsakes property in general to go and have a closer relationship with, with people that's not watered down by property. Does that seem right to you? Okay. Now, again, most people don't make it here. Of course, the American dream is to make it there and stop, right? We are well acquainted with these. Sometimes, and this is in the Roman Catholic tradition, right, there was room for that. The Fran Franciscans were mendicants. You, you know what I mean? But, but it's not like Hinduism prescribes this. There's always uncertainty in every religion about this category of people, right? Always. The mendicants as well. Like, good for them, but I don't want my son being that, right? This is sort of the deal. Or not for me. I'll, here, I'll, I'll help you out and be on your way. Don't stay too long. Um, that's sort of the deal there. Um, so no matter what you are, a laborer or a Brahmin, or at, you know, a, a king or a parliament member, whatever your caste is, you sort of have these opportunities within your caste. The exception maybe being the outcast, right? The Dalit or the pariah has really 
None of those. <laughs> the student phase would be very, very short, right? Um, not a lot of opportunities to own a house. Retirement's really weird. You probably are an ascetic your whole life anyway, basically, but not by choice, by, by imposition. Okay, that's, a, that's okay? Yes, sir. Yes. Absolutely. So one of those people, of course, is Siddhartha, right? Siddhartha Gautama, who becomes the Buddha. You know, he ends up being a very wealthy ruler, right? Has children, a wife. He kind of skips the forest dweller, I guess, and becomes the aesthetic, right? But, but we'll, that's why we'll do Buddhism next, because Buddhism comes right out of all of this, shares some nomenclature, invents new, redefines some, but has a lot of the worldview in common, actually, right? And, but but, that, but that's, that's the Buddha. And if you're Hindu, it's not like you'd say Siddhartha was like Satan. You would say, yeah, look, Siddhartha, aesthetic. <laughs> right? That's, that's what he did. Great. Now, now back to Hinduism. Right? I mean, that's sort of the deal. Just like if you're Muslim, you don't hate Jesus. He was a prophet. Good. Didn't mean exactly to us what he meant to you, Christian people, but we've got esteem for him and respect. S same with Siddhartha. Um, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about rites of passage, right? So rites of passage are things we have, theoretically, that are, that are milestones in your life that move you from one state to another. So think about them. You get married, and now you're a husband. We don't say that having a child is a rite of passage, but it is. And, and I'll give you two stories. Before that child... You were you, and after that child, your dad or mom. And it doesn't matter what happens to that child, you will always be a mom or a dad, even, God forbid, they don't live long. Do you understand what I mean? Your identity has changed forever. A social commentary that's sure to offend. When we were in Atlanta at Emory, we had to do contextual education, ministry out in the community. One year it could be with a church, and another year it had to be with a social organization. So I ended up at this drug rehab for, um, for drug-addicted homeless men, and my wife ended up in East Atlanta, uh, well, Southeast Atlanta at that, um, tutoring with uh, like a girl who was 14 and, and didn't, couldn't read. And her entire community was black. And it's not a big surprise, because Atlanta's 55% black ethnically, right? And um, she'd go there, and the people in the community, after the first meeting, like, we kind of like you, so whatever you do, don't come here when it starts to get dark, because you'll probably get really hurt or killed. So just don't come. You can only come during daylight hours. These are sort of the rules. And what my wife sort of figured out, and I don't want to quote her too much, but, but there's a lot of research on this, is that, what do you know, a disproportionate share of the boys in that community were going to jail. And part of it, says the research, is because if they could be tried as an adult, it would be proof that they were adults. The other way that you could become an adult, the real esteemed one, was to become a professional athlete. Those were the rites of passage into adulthood in that very bleak community. As a woman, the way that you could go from a girl to being a woman, you see, was to have a baby. 
because when you had a baby, you were an adult. Now, this might sound very flattening and diminutive, but I actually hope you hear that it's appreciative that people are looking for markers to say, I have moved on. And I would ask you, do you think a high school diploma marks adulthood right now in any community in the United States? I sure don't think so. It used to, didn't it? 40 years ago. How about a bachelor's degree? Does that mark adulthood? I'm pretty convinced not. Or a master's degree. Used to be people knew, I did this, now I'm an adult, and everybody knew that. What's the marker now? Because don't you think young people want to be adults one day? Don't say it's confirmation. It's not. Although I'm really happy that I'm, we're going to make three adults. <laughs> it's not too late for, for Jim and Nadine and Dick. Yeah. <laughs> but it used, to be, it used to be that, right? In Judaism, it used to be your bar mitzvah or your bat mitzvah. But that happens when you're 12 and 13. Is the larger community going to accept those people as adults? Come on. I remember distinctly when my brother turned 18 and he said to my mom, I'm an adult. And she just laughed. She just thought that was hilarious. He did not think that was funny. And what they both needed, right, was that rite of passage. I, uh, honestly, marriage was a bit of that for me. I was 25. Having a baby was another one. Adopting a child. Those were marks, but they weren't totally smooth. Do you, do you know what I mean? But there is a deep yearning for these things, right? And, and, they, and they have, this is what we're talking about when we say rites of passage. If you think about what you get in the church. You get a rite of passage when you're baptized, which you probably didn't remember unless you came here when you were later in life. That's good. You get a confirmation once, and that's it. Unless you want to be a priest, okay? You get that one. You don't have to get confirmed, by the way. Uh, anointing with oil is not a rite of passage because you can have it as often as you'd like. Last rites are kind of a passage, but you can have those more than one time because we don't actually do last rites in the Episcopal Church. We do commendation, commendation at the time of death. That's, that's it. Reconciliation, not a rite, you know, it's confession. That's not a rite of passage. You think we don't have very many of these things and people sure do want them. Yes, sir. Unfortunately. Well, <laughs> that's right. Um,
Well, now I think that's. When I think that's where that's what I mean, where I think that's becoming a little bit tricky, is that there's people who might do it for a year and then they're right back in, right back on it. And that rate, right, of people going to the workforce and then coming back to live with their parents to save on economy and pursue a master's degree that their parents are helping pay for, there's nothing wrong with that. But it starts to become confusing because did you actually pass, or was it, you know, was it like a short-term pass? I mean, I. Th and I think it's confusing for young people, too, because we haven't figured this thing out. We just haven't. And, of course, marriage is confusing because fewer people are doing it. And if a divorce happens within two years, did you pass or not? I mean, I'm just trying to be honest about this. I'm not being pejorative. I just think there's a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion. Again, I didn't feel like having my graduate degree, which I paid for myself, necessarily made me an adult. I got married after that. And there was something about that because I knew in my head, I'm, I'm paying for this, I'm doing this by myself. Somehow it, it started that road, but that was again a road, you know. There are many days I still get up and I think, oh man, I'm not an adult yet. <laughs> if I were, I would blank. There's a lot of blanks. Okay. All that's to say is religion typically has given these things discreetly, strongly, and that's getting becomingly confused. I mean, increasingly it's becoming confused. It is. I do meet people who have really no interest in Christianity that want a wedding. And I think it's because they want to know. Do you, do you know what I mean? I meet people who have been married at the, at the magistrate. And they want a church's wedding because they want a church wedding. And part of the reason they want it is because everybody will see and know that now they've done this thing together. That's actually pretty admirable, don't you think? Because a church wedding really is a social contract that includes God in the society, right? Okay, so what are they in Hinduism? Well, when, you're, when, when birthdays are, are the big deal, they're a big deal in every tradition, right? Um, weddings are a big deal, you know. They involve usually the groom on a white horse, Sometimes there can be other elephants, uh, <laughs> other animals, including <laughs> elephants. It sort of depends on where you live and, 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 and what you have. But they go on for days, right? Anybody been to a Hindu wedding? In India? Anybody been to a wedding in India? I have not. Joe, you've been to one in India, I presume, right? Um, I had a friend, actually, who was a diamond dealer. That was his business. And he went to this one in India who was the diamond mine owner. And it was, it was diamond delicious. I mean, there were diamonds <laughs> everywhere. The, the, the bride wore like a thousand diamonds stitched into her dress. That was the thing. And again, it was days and days, and the expense was tremendous, and it was this huge party. And sure enough, the groom came in on the horse, right? And they walk around a sacred fire together as part of the ceremony, right? Um, We'll talk about that later. That's a link to Zoroastrianism, oddly enough. Some people say Zoroaster came out of... Yeah, that's right. Some people say Zoroaster, likely, came out of the Hindu tradition and went monotheism so that it's the oldest monotheism, older than Judaism. Anyway, um, sacred fire is part of the, the, the marriage. When you're a student, by the way, there's a, there's a moment, there's a ceremony. So you do have this sort of student ceremony where you get a sacred thread, um, and that's sort of initiating that that student where you're now formally going to study. Of course, again, if you don't go to school, it's kind of hard to have that, that, that experience. Um, and then, of course, death 
death is, a, is, is your other rite of passage into maybe the next life. And as we've talked about this before, if you don't, um, if you don't uh, expunge all of that negative karma off your Atman, right, then it will affect your next birth where you could be born diminutively as a grasshopper or, or as a swine, right? This would be really problems. A cow would actually be a step up, right, because that's a sacred animal, depending on what kind of Hindu you are. Because it's not all uniform. Um, what can you do with somebody when they've died? Well, typically the body's cremated, right? That's very, very old and regular. And if you can get them into the Ganges River, and I told you why that was, right? That's the water from heaven that flows from the Himalayas that Shiva caught in his top knot. If you can get there, particularly at Benares, that might actually wash away your negative karma or some of it. Sounds a lot like baptism right, in the early Christian tradition. You realize the Emperor Constantine was baptized on the eve of his death in 337, not when he converted in 312, because he believed that baptism would wash away all of your sins. And if you did that too early, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, he took that stuff seriously, right? If we really thought that's what baptism meant, then that's when we should do it too. Some people still do. Right? Again, you go to a Roman Catholic couple who've had their baby in the hospital born, stillborn, they want a baptism. They don't want anything else. It's really important that that child get a baptism so that it doesn't go to hell. Because without it, that's what's happening. And you can, you can try to play tricks on them. I'll anoint them with water. They want a baptism. I, mean, <laughs> I just want you to know that's what they want. Right? Because that's what they believe they need. And, and, and this happens also with the bodies, and we can sort of say, like, ooh, the River Ganges is really gross and dirty, and it's not for them. Pilgrims, when we go to the River Jordan, I promise you this, it does not look like any Alaskan glacial-fed river. I mean, it, it looks like Clear Creek, and we all know how clear that creek is, right? <laughs> it's in my backyard. It's pretty brown. That's it. And yet, there's something about the historicity and the theology of the water, regardless of its scientific composition, okay? So, so that's, again, this other rite of passage into your new birth is this, is this cremation ceremony that happens. Of course, you know that part of the lifestyle is different for men and women, and this is changing, but I don't, could be wrong, and Joe, tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the practice of sati, do you know this practice? That's where a widow is burned on her husband's funeral pyre. It is illegal, but that doesn't mean it's no longer done. In most of the country, I think, n no longer done. Yeah, okay, good. That's good to hear, right? Good to hear. Of course, when we're talking about this, I'm really representing life stages for men and life goals for men, right? Because it assumes that the person who's in charge of the family is the one negotiating the stages. And while India and Hinduism, like Christianity and Islam, are growing in rights of women, right? There is a disproportionate I don't, I don't mean like unfair, a different division of expectations put on men and women, right? 
So I hope it's fair to say that as a woman, your job, of course, is to please your husband and your mother-in-law in Hinduism, in India. Is it religious? Is it cultural? Yes. Difficult, difficult the transition there, right? And we, we're in the middle of our own cultural transitions here in the States. I mean, we just have to be honest about that, right? And some of them are religious, and some of them are cultural, and some of them are yes, both, right? Marriages customarily were arranged. Now, maybe they're arranged with consent or not arranged at all. Depends on your family, right? And some daughters, particularly, might choose a man, and the parents will say no, and if you do that, I'm cutting you off economically, and that may happen just like that. As we know, right, in this country, we chose our own people for the last 50, 60 years, but sometimes we're threats <laughs> from our parents. Some of us were threatened by our parents <laughs> about our choices. I don't know if anybody in the room was. Um, so, so, uh, so that happens, and, then, and we also we see things change as that goes along, particularly if it goes well, right? And if not, then there's that always, I told you so, which is my favorite parenting moment to have. Um, <laughs> the other job of women in the, in the traditional uh, cultural sense is to have sons. Sons. Children are great, but you better have boys, right? And lots of those would be better than the alternative. Of course, as you know, that can't even work statistically or population-wise, but that didn't stop that from being a cultural yardstick. By the way, very biblical, very biblical. You can have 10 girls in a row, you have one boy, and finally you had a child. Biblical. Asian, we're well familiar, this is the case in China and Japan, Korea, right? Makes a lot of sense, particularly when you've got primogenitor. European, right? Who'd ever thought Elizabeth could be queen of the English throne? The English didn't think that. Henry didn't think that, right? That's why he went around with those other people. Okay? We, we had to accommodate that to prevent for further civil wars, frankly, or we wouldn't have done it. And even after that happened, you know, William and Mary came. Mary was the rightful heir, but people didn't think a woman would be strong enough, so they needed William. Now, they always thought Mary was the queen, but, <laughs> but she needed a man. So, so, you know, we've, we've got our own history of that. I just want to think I want to be really fair here. This is not me telling you my opinion, but I think it's really interesting that we've got a political candidate running for president who in some ways her competency is being questioned because she's female. In some ways. So we're not all the way over it. Is, it, is that okay for me to say? Sometimes we like to think we are, but we're, we're still not all the way over that, right? Again, there's, there's just even language that's emerged this year in presidential campaign that is really, um, it makes me sad to have, it makes me sad not to have a daughter. It's sad for my daughter that people still think in these categories and are bold enough to express them publicly. Because sure enough, she believes that boys can do almost anything a girl can do. 
which if you had a daughter, that's what you'd want her to think too, isn't it? Um, so, okay, so life stages for men and women. And then you see, because your goal, when we're talking about sati, that practice of the widow being burned on the fire, right, her, her goal is to go with her man. And that's ultimately where that sort of comes from, and that's ultimate service and devotion to her husband, right? Um, I didn't talk to you yet about rites of renewal, so maybe we'll just do that next time with what is it you do at a temple, what kind of temples are there, what are the, the icons and the, the objects of worship and things like that. Is that okay? Yes, sir. Great, because the Sikhs really aren't Hindu. The Sikhs come out, uh, the Sikhs are really like a, a Muslim, Hindu-twisted uh, birth out of both in India. And then the Jains, we'll talk about, because they do also go out of Hinduism, but we'll talk about the Jains when we talk about the Buddhists too, because they're, they're all shoots out of, the, out of the big trunk, as it were, just like Christians came out of Judaism and so did Islam. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Um, see you next week, if you're here. <laughs>